welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome back to A Congruent Life. This is episode six. I'm Andy Gray. Thank you for joining us today. I really do appreciate you listening to us in your car or on your phone or on the website. Wherever you might be, thanks for sharing this time with us. This program is about sharing the journeys and stories of people who are taking charge of their lives and living authentically, whatever that might mean to them. Today, I'm really pleased to be talking with Bernie Glassman. Bernie is well known throughout the world as a pioneer in socially engaged Buddhism and founded the Zen Peacemakers. He also co-wrote a book called The Dude and the Zen Master with Academy Award-winning actor Jeff Bridges. Bernie was sitting outside during our conversation, so you'll hear some natural and human-made sounds in the background as he's speaking. I wonder if we might just start with some of your background and talk about the path that you took to ultimately start the Zen Peacemaker Circle. I believe that you were raised in a Jewish family? Yeah, Jewish uh, socialist, not Jewish Orthodox. And so socialism was part of my upbringing, you know, working for various causes. So I go back, I mean, I'm almost 75. So when I was growing up, uh, the causes were around the civil rights movement, uh, poverty movements, labor, you know, union work, at least in, in my family, though, I mean, I was young at the time. I, I decided to go into, I want, I loved airplanes and I decided, decided to be an aeronautical engineer. By the time I graduated, the big industry was space work. So that's, I, I worked in a planetary work for quite a while. But during that period, uh, my household was uh, teaching folks how to avoid entering the Vietnam War, you know, so it was a product of the 60s and early 70s and what that all means. But I had also gotten involved as a parallel career, actually, in Zen around 63. I started to study Zen in 58, but from 58 to 63, it was pretty much on my own. 63, I actually started to study with a teacher. So I've been in Zen for 55 years or so. And I started to teach. Well, my teacher went back to Japan for a year in 69 and, and put me in charge. So I started to teach about 40 years ago. And I stayed in parallel track until 1976. And then I, I was a full-time Zen teacher. I trained with my teacher, who was Japanese in the Zen Center of Los Angeles, and in December of 79, moved back to New York. I'm originally from New York, from Brooklyn. Moved back to New York and then started to create my own vision of Zen training that involved social engagement. So people talk about me as being the founder of socially engaged Buddhism because at the time I started, there was a lot of pushback by Buddhist teachers in this country saying social engagement is not part of the Buddhist practice, which made no sense to me. And uh, I just continue to do that. And now it's a huge part of the, the Buddhist world. Socially engaged Buddhism is uh, in the West is, is very big. It, I mean, it had been in Asia, I'd say, over the last certainly 20 years or maybe 15 years. It's 
nobody complains about uh, social engagement. It's not part of Buddhism. It seems a little silly. That, that's a quick background. So what do you see as this relationship between Judaism and Buddhism? It seems oftentimes that those worlds cross over, that folks have perhaps a Jewish upbringing and discover Buddhism along the way. What do you see as maybe some parallel threads between those systems of thought or world philosophies? You know, that's the question that, that has been asked of most uh, Jew Buddhists, Buddhist people that came from Jewish tradition. As you say, many, there are many of us and I've never had a, a good answer to that. If you want to take a Jewish perspective, a, a very close friend of mine is a, a rabbi who started a Jewish renewal movement. His name is Zalman Shekta. At, at one point, I consider him my rabbi. He considers me his Zen teacher. He's older than me. He's about 89 now. But at one point, I said to him, uh, what do you think about my getting smicha, becoming a rabbi under you? I was already a Zen teacher, and we've been doing things together for quite a while. And he said, no. He said, there are some of, some of our tribe, some of the Jews, that have been sent out to study and delve into the other traditions and spiritual modes and to learn in, in those modes and then to let that learning seep back into our Jewish ways. And he said, that's much more important than you becoming a rabbi. So that was his answer, that it was ordained by God that certain Jews would go out, like Ram Dass into the Hindu world and myself into the Buddhist world, and to, to do that. And not to proselytize, but to go out, become teachers, learn the methodology. And, and just by doing that, it would seep back and influence. So his Jewish renewal movement has a lot of those influences in it. Sufism, Hinduism, Buddhism. So that's one answer. From my perspective, I don't know. You know, I don't uh, believe in any kind of truths. I, I believe in opinions. So I have my opinions and everybody else has their opinions. And I don't think of opinions as being right or wrong. Opinions can't be right or wrong. And therefore, if we have different opinions, we can't fight about them. I mean, we can share them and discuss them and look at each other's opinions. But it, it doesn't lead to war. When you think you know the right answer, that you can get into trouble. You often use this phrase, socially engaged Buddhism, and in fact, you were alluding to that a moment ago. Zen does have sort of this reputation of the antithesis of this, and you mentioned that you thought that was a sort of a false dichotomy. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your perspective about socially engaged Buddhism and perhaps what you see as the balance between action and contemplation? Sure. I don't use the word balance. So I go back to definitions. The word Buddha, so Buddhism is causes an ism of Buddha. So the word Buddha translates as awakened one. So Buddhism is, is it's a club of awakening and there's lots of different techniques of, uh, that uh, are used to awaken and those techniques are stressed by different groups and they become different schools of Buddhism. So we have many types of Buddhism, but it's all aimed at helping people to awaken. So then the question is, awakened to what? And in my opinion, and in my experience, the awakening is awakening to the interconnectedness of life, to the oneness of life. I don't think there'll be anybody that can argue that. 
that's what it means. But for many people, uh, that awakening is also called an enlightenment experience. So for many people, when they say enlightened person, they're sort of very vague about what they mean. They, they sort of mean good person, happy. I mean, they have all kinds of, but it, it's, it's very simple in my head, in my opinion, that it's, it's you awaken to the oneness of life. Now, there's a famous Japanese Buddhist teacher who lived around 800 AD, who said, and he's the, his name is Kobadaishi, he's the founder of the Tantra form of Japanese Buddhism. He said that, that you can tell the depth of a person's enlightenment by how they serve others. And so that comes again from this definition. That is, if my awakening is all about the oneness of myself, then I'm going to be serving myself. I'm going to be taking care of myself. I'll be doing things to make myself more stable, more, more enlightened, maybe more educated, healthier. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we, we're taking care of ourselves. If our enlightenment experience goes a little deeper to where we now see the interconnectedness of our family, we're going to be taking care of the family. So, for example, an obvious example of that is when a woman gives birth, at the moment of birth, there's no separation. And the, the child cries or does something, the mother immediately reacts and, and takes care because it's, it's, it's an interconnect. She doesn't think, oh, this baby is me. There is a deep sense of experience of interconnectedness. Now, obviously, before the birth, it was in her body. And then if the enlightenment experience deepens, we now can see people that are taking care of their village or their society. And an extreme case for me would be uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We look at him, he's taking care of the world. He's not taking care of just himself. He's not just taking care of the Tibetans, which is a pretty big task in itself. And he's in charge of, of these four different schools of Tibetan Buddhism, but he's not just taking care of them. He's a world figure and he's taking care of the world. So for me, his enlightenment experience is to the depth of taking care of the world. So it seems very natural, well, it seems unnatural, that if your enlightenment experience deepens, that you're not going to be doing social engaged work from the outside. For, for the person doing it, if, if this is coming out of their experience, they may not be saying, I'm doing social engaged work. People looking from the outside would say, oh, they're doing social engaged work. If somebody's saying that that's not part of the Buddhist practice, then they haven't experienced that, that sense. So for me, it's very natural. And then I, what I decided uh, quite a while ago is that since it's such a natural, you could train in socially engaged Buddhism as a way of deepening your enlightenment. That is, meditation is one way of training. Chanting is one way. There's different ways of training. But it seemed to me that doing socially engaged work from some Buddhist principles, uh, I have some basic Buddhist principles that we train people uh, in. And if you're doing your social engagement work from that, that will deepen uh, your, your, your experience of interconnectedness. And that's been my experience. I've been doing this for quite a while. And it's sort of spread that we now, 
in the Zen Peacemakers, we have over 100 affiliates around the world and many, many people doing this kind of work. Over the course of your life, you've been involved in, in countless street retreats and journeys to the field. Can you maybe give us a tell us a little bit about some of these and talk a bit about how those have been impactful to you and to the world? Yeah, and, and that comes right out of what I just said, that most the retreats I call bearing witness retreats, and as you know, there as you mentioned the street retreats. That's that was the first bearing witness retreat that I did street retreats, and that was first one was about 22 years ago. I think I've done my last. I'm not sure. My last one was about a year and a half ago. So it was a celebration of the 20th year of doing street retreats. But there are many of my students are doing continuing that kind of retreat all around the world. But then I did a bearing witness retreat at Auschwitz, Auschwitz-Birkenau, and uh, now we're planning one in, in uh, Rwanda. Um, and I have students that have done these bearing witness retreats in all kinds of places, including in Germany in a uh, slaughterhouse. So, and somebody has done it in Thailand in a mall. So it doesn't have to be a place of disaster or a place of poverty. It's a place of bearing witness to a form of life that you weren't used to or to ideas that you weren't used to. So in the streets, it, it was I, I, I did them to bear witness to, to street people. I, I wouldn't say homeless. And I said it was you know, it's a big project in, in Yonkers, New York. It's uh, quite large and quite successful. But I went to bear witness to be able to decide on ways that I wanted to do the work coming out of my experience of the interconnectedness with the folks. That is, I don't do, I don't like to do anything from the uh, thought process of I'm going to help those or I'm going to solve those. That's a, a dualistic notion. And that's not coming from what I call bearing witness. Bearing witness is is, is grokking the situation, is becoming the situation, letting the techniques flow out of that rather than out of some pre-thought plan of how to fix things. So coming up with this notion of how do you do socially engaged work in a Buddhist way, for me it meant entering the situation without a fixed plan and deeply listening. That's we have three tenets in the Zen Peacemakers, the first being not knowing. And it means don't come with a plan of how you're going to fix things. Come and just deeply listen with an open mind. And as you know, that's very difficult because we have all these attachments. And most Buddhist techniques are how do you get rid of attachments so that you could experience the oneness of life. So our first tenet, not knowing, says I go into the streets without any plan and, and without any thought of what's going to happen. Now, obviously, we all have our ideas of what's going to happen. And almost everybody who went on the streets with me, and there's been thousands now, had their idea of what would happen. And to all, it was never the, the case of what they thought was going to happen. The second is bearing witness. That means stay there. And so be in that situation. So they retreated Auschwitz or in Rwanda. We stay there. We stay in that situation with all, as many voices as we can that 
relate to the different things that went on there. So in Auschwitz, all the retreats have had children and grandchildren of SS people, people who ran camps. They've all had survivors and children, grandchildren of survivors. We, we had gypsies. Uh, we had the queen of the gypsies because Auschwitz was the place the gypsies were killed. Uh, handicapped people because that was the place where the handicapped were killed. So the theme of that retreat is the other. That is, it was a place where uh, Hitler said, if you're not Aryan, you're no good, and you're subhuman, and we'll kill you. That's one way of dealing with the other. There are many ways of dealing with the other. And, and our most common way of dealing with the other, and we all have to deal with what our notion of the other, because that's a place where we haven't realized or actualized the interconnectedness. So the most common is we ignore them. Right? So normally you wouldn't invite into your house somebody that's of a different political thought than you. Or, so if you're liberals, you stay away from the conservatives, and conservatives stay away from the liberals. We all form our little clubs of those that are like us. And so at Auschwitz, I brought every, as many different people as possible. Now the people that came thought they were liberal and could work with each other, but their experience of being together was they couldn't. They could get upset with each other for different things. But out of bearing witness, out of staying together and sharing what's coming up, what are the, all the difficulties and the hatreds or the angers or the guilt of sharing it all, we became a family. And this, this is now the 18th year of the Auschwitz retreat, and it's still happening. It's, uh, and we bring people now, uh, we, we brought Native Americans, because they want a form of bearing witness retreat, so we brought elders to experience what it's like. We'll be doing the Wanda bearing witness retreat, so the Wandans have come to experience what that's like. Uh, we have Palestinians and Israelis. There are met so many people that are at war with each other, as you know, which have big others. So we bring them there to experience uh, what that means. The Rwandan retreat, the, the theme, the themes will come up out of the retreat, but my sense is that one, it will be around forgiveness, because they, they had a very special thing going on in Rwanda where people that killed somebody else's families wound up in a large process of forgiveness. But when I met with the people who had forgiven killers, killers of their family, you still see so much pain and trauma in their eyes. So it's not so easy. It's not easy to say I forgive, and it's not easy for that to really, to really deepen. And out, uh, so the bearing witness is the second tenet as then perspective. The third is loving actions, which I say arise if you can get into a situation with deep by deep listening instead of by having your plan and if you can bear witness. And if you can do that, uh, my opinion is that actions will arise which are uh, loving actions for, for that scene. So coming from this place of unknowing or, or unattachment, what are some things that have surprised you in these kinds of experiences? Well, for example, in a street retreat, I think the first time I did it, so we all have our attachments, so the first time I did it, 
I was concerned whether it would be safe. Would we get? Would we be able to eat? Uh, would we sleep? The things that I thought would be issues turned out not to be issues. The the biggest issue that came up in the street retreats and has continued to be the case for first time people at a street retreat. Almost everybody who comes to a street retreat has those same worries that I express. And almost everybody has the same feeling, a couple of feelings after. One, the biggest feeling that they have that affects them is uh, loss of dignity. Having people not look at them, not want to deal with. So I'll give you an example. A, a wonderful actress who's part of the Zen Peacemakers, Ellen Burstyn, went on a street retreat. And I have certain rules of people coming. They can't come with any money. Uh, there's a few other rules. You have to meander. You, you, uh, if you take your shoes off, you have to keep them close to you, or you can use them as a pillow, but don't let them be stolen. <laughs> um, but at any rate, uh, uh, one day she was begging, and she went up to this cafe, and uh, there were three women having tea outside. And she asked if she could have some money. And a woman gave her a dollar. And she started to cross the street and she was all happy she had got this dollar. And then she started to cry. And she stopped, why am I crying? And then she realized that she cried because the woman gave her the dollar like this. That is, the woman could not look at her. And she had never experienced that. So uh, now that's not a surprise for me, but it was on my first retreat, and you know, maybe the second retreat. And I'd say for everybody who's gone on the streets, it's impossible for them to walk down the street and see somebody sitting on the sidewalk and just look away. They almost always will say, how are you? What's your name? And the money is, uh, that's not important. What people want that are on the street is to be recognized. Uh, they want love, and that's. Uh, I just did a book with the dude, uh, with Jeff Bridges, called The Dude and the Zen Master. And in that movie, it starts off by somebody pissing on his rug, and his friend Walter says, The rug really tied the room together, did it not? And I think that uh, love is the rug that ties the world together. And it's when we don't see that. And as long as there's an other, it's not, it's not what I would call true love. So, and that's what we want. And you, you'll, you'll get that out of bearing witness. And that arises at Auschwitz. You, you wouldn't think that Auschwitz broken out such a horrible place would have such healing, but it does. And I think the thing that's the the biggest healing component is that love starts with us out of all. So, for example, every morning in, in, at that retreat, it goes for a week. Then before breakfast, we meet in small groups, no larger than 12. And we select a group so that the members are all quite different. And we have some facilitators. And I facilitate one of the groups. And two years ago, in the group I was facilitating, a woman, and first, on the first day, we, we just get to know each other, let's give our name and why we, why we came. And 
And she said she was German. I was thinking of coming to this retreat for 15 years, but I was afraid. My, my grandfather was an SS officer who was in charge of a camp, and I was afraid I would meet a Jewish person or a Polish person. And then another guy said uh, he was from Poland, and he said, for 10 years I've been thinking of coming to this retreat, but I was afraid to. I was afraid I would meet a German person. And after three days, they were hugging each other. So that's the uh, kind of healing that comes out of bearing witness to each other, you know, to different aspects of life. Uh, and almost any person, without whether not have to be Buddhist, almost anyone who has sat with a loved one who's dying, that's a bearing witness also. You're bearing witness to the person passing on. Almost anyone who does that and can stay there and bear witness will say, I've been fighting with my father or my mother or whoever is dying all for so many years, and in this period of sitting with them, uh, a big love arose. So I think that's a natural arising out of uh, this bearing witness. You've written several books, including most recently the one that you just mentioned that you co-wrote with Jeff Bridges called The Dude and the Zen Master. How did you get to know Jeff Bridges, and, and what's the story behind the book? Well, the direct cause is that uh, we moved to Santa Barbara. He lives in Santa Barbara. And we moved off. Of, we were, I was working around the world, but we had a headquarters. And we moved the headquarters to Santa Barbara about 15 years ago. And I have a mutual friend. I have a student. His name is Michael O'Keefe. He's an actor. And he married a singer, Bonnie Raitt. I officiated their wedding. And Bonnie and Jeff went to high school together. So they told me to look up Jeff. They said he's a great guy. Look him up when we get there. And they told me that his wife, Sue, was very heavily involved in uh, working with the homeless. And that's uh, I had been already doing that. So I did when we got there. And... And it uh, turns out he had been working with the hunger. He's, he had a hunger foundation for 30 years now. And we got together and we really hit it off. We both loved cigars. We hung out and, and rapped a lot. And uh, he, he, when I met him, had been a meditator for quite a while. And, of course, he had made this fantastic movie. From, in my opinion, the, the, uh, he started and he didn't make it. Lebowski, and I had seen the movie about a year before I met him. And when I met him, it was quite amazing because he looked just like the dude in the, in the movie. In fact, I later found out that clothes that he wore in the movie were his own clothes. And, and he dresses at home pretty much that way. <laughs> and he, he, he talks and acts a lot like that. It, but he's uh, also quite a bit more serious than the he, he is quite laid back like the, the dude in the movie, but he's also involved in a lot of serious projects, and he loves to talk about, we, we rapped about all kinds of things. But he was, he had already been interested in Buddhism, and so we wound up studying together. I call it studying together. You know, he asked me a number of times, should, should I be calling your teacher? I said, I don't use that anymore. It's, uh, we're friends, and we're studying together. We learn from each other. And then about two years ago, I said, how about if we sit down and make a book 
we've been studying now for about 13 years. And he has a, he lives in Santa Barbara, and he has a home in Montana. So we, uh, he, he liked the idea. We went to Montana. And for four days, we rapped, we spoke. So he said, we wrote the book, but we actually, it was conversation. And, uh, but we were taped at both for sound and video for the full four days, from morning to night, in the house, walking in the mountains, wherever we were, it was taped. And then, um, and we talked about everything, you know, uh, we just, I had some stuff that I wanted to cover, but we, we went where, where our conversation took us, just like what we're doing now. And then at the end, we, uh, it got transcribed by a sonographer type person. There was about 500 pages. And then my wife, who's a writer and fantastic editor, actually took it all and massaged it, cut it down to maybe 200 pages, but massaged it all so that it, it flowed well as a book and uh, came up with titles for each chapter from the movie. You know, and and it, all, it all worked. When I had seen the movie, I had been quite impressed by the dialogue as being a modern-day dialogue of, of, of boundaries and principles. Now, when Jeff was making the movie True Grit, a um, magazine, Tricycle magazine, wanted, uh, did an interview of us, and we did it on the set, True Grit, which was uh, directed by the same people who directed The Big Lebowski, the Coen brothers. And so I went out there, and Jeff introduced me to them, and I asked them, do you know about Zen? Did you use any of those principles from reading Zen? Because there was so much dialogue that, for me, uh, was modern-day Cohen system. And one brother said he never read anything about Zen. And the other one said, well, I've read stuff, and I enjoy it, but I didn't use any of that stuff in the movie. So it was just coming from them. But uh, there's so many beautiful lines that I, I created a whole Cohen system out of that movie. Yeah, and those chapter headings are almost all Cohen's in the, in the, in the book. Ironic having the, the Coens from the Coen brothers, huh? Before making, doing the book, Jeff called them and said, you know, he said, I, uh, I don't want to piss on your territory, but we're planning to write a, a, a book on the, using a lot of stuff from the Big Lebowski and, uh, with, my friend, with my buddy Bernie, who you guys met. Is it okay? And he said, oh, that'd be wonderful. Go ahead. Yeah, we strongly endorse the idea of you guys doing that. So they were fine with it. But yeah, and I use that line all the time. Cohen's from the Cohen brothers, you know. <laughs> so the mission of this project uh, at Congruent Life is to share stories of authenticity. What does living authentically or congruently mean to you? Uh, that's one of the reasons I agree to this, because for me, bearing witness, you can't be more authentic. If you, uh, just in a, com in a conversation, bearing witness would mean my, my not having pre-planning of what I'm going to do with you, but try to grok where you're coming from in the interview. And if I can do that, then we can have a good conversation. For, for me, that's authentic. When I do a workshop, it's exactly the same. I never prepare for a workshop. And I first start off by having the folks uh, in, in the, the participants ask me questions or 
give statements or I, I say them give answers. I, I, I don't believe that there are any answers, but if you do, please give them. And I, I got to tell you that I'm going to consider them your opinions, but share with me. And I don't answer one-on-one. I, 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 I query the whole group. And then together we do dialogue. So I, I'm bearing witness to the group. And so even though I may be talking about the same things, it always is different because it's, it's, it, it comes out as, as the group. One of the times it struck me the most, it's quite amazing. I, there's a theme that we Zen teachers use a lot as the first colon kind of thing. I gave a talk on that in a, a maximum security prison. I had a student who was working in that maximum security prison. And when I heard myself talking, I was talking like a gangster. So uh, I loved it. You know, all a very different terminology came out. Different way of talking came out. So for me, it's also fun because that means I'm shifting depending on who I'm with. And so it's always new. Even if it's the same material, it's coming out different in different ways. And so for me, that's, that's being authentic. You, you know, it, it's not being in a dualistic situation, not being subject-object where I'm projecting or laying what's happening against the things I've experienced, whatever. Um, everything is coming anew, which is the first time, and that's really authentic to me. What would you like your legacy or spiritual footprint to be? It's sort of happening. Many of uh, Buddhist teachers, especially in my family, I have 40 Dharma successors, 40 people that I recognize as teachers, and of course they have people, so it's a big family. One of the things that gives me a lot of joy is hearing people making it clear when they're talking that what they're Sharing is just their opinion. It's not like they've got the truth. In, in Buddhism, we talk about, we, we say that Shakyamuni Buddha had four noble truths. And I always talk about them as the four noble opinions. For fundamentalists, uh, it really is uh, upsetting. But I think I'm, that would be my legacy if everybody could just talk about things being their opinion. Because I do, I do a lot of work in conflict resolution. You know, I'm working in the Middle East, and, and all these wars and all these hatreds are because somebody has the truth and wants the other person to accept their truth, uh, and they can't just share their opinions. I think it would change the whole world if we went around realizing that whatever we hear or whatever, even if it's written in the Bible or in the Quran, that it's just an opinion, man, you know? And how beautiful to share and discuss opinions. But we don't need the other person to take on our opinion. But we, you know, it goes on and on. And we see it in families, husband and wife. Don't you know what's right? Or people talking to their kids, telling them the right things to do, you know? Yeah, so that would be... For me, the biggest thing is to see that happen. And what's next for you, Bernie? What uh, current project in your world are you most excited about? I'm not doing any new projects in the sense of my history where I did big projects and was charge of them and had staffs and whatever. But I am uh, facilitating stuff to happen. So one that I'm... uh, 
quite excited. I don't know if it will be fulfilled, but but I'm putting a bunch of energy into. I had uh, created this big project in Yonkers, and you probably know about it, the, uh, the Grayson Mandala. Quite a number of different companies all together to, that was working on homelessness and AIDS and, and poverty and stuff. And it's done really well. I'm looking to bring that model to an Arab city in Israel. A couple of things. One of them is to do it in a way that the CEO, there is a possibility I could bring $5 million of business there. But the model, Grayson model is not just a, a company. It's a number of companies that deal with childcare and, and relate, family relations, and but creating jobs. And so one of the things we're looking at is the CEO and upper management to be Arab Muslim women. So that's one of the most difficult positions, roles in Israel. If you're a Muslim woman, your husband does not want you to be in a position of power. And an Israeli Jew doesn't want the Arab to be telling them what to do. And uh, and the staff is the town we're looking at is a fairly large town, but the, uh, the wall goes right through the town. So the town was twice as big before there was a wall. And now there's an uh, Israel side and a West Bank side. But there's a gate in the walls. And there are many Jews that live in that city. So staff, Israeli Palestinians, Israeli Jews, and West Bank Palestinians. I won't be running it, but I'm bringing all the folks together to make it happen. So that's exciting. The other things that that I'm doing is more, you know, I'm almost 75, so I'm, I'm going uh, quite a, to a number of places around the world where I have connections and just serving, asking them how can I help and, and uh, doing stuff like that. That's what you, you uh, had referred in the beginning to journeys to the field. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, so I go to places and I just serve, you know. And it turns out that one of the big ways I can serve is by connecting them with other people. But I, I, I go, I bear witness to what's happening, and I see what's, what's the best way I, that I think I can serve them and what do they want. So that's what I'm doing nowadays. I do do some workshops, but that's just to make money. Uh, it's not what I, if I had enough money, I probably wouldn't be doing that. I would just be doing the service work. Well, Bernie, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much for that. Is, is there a final thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with about authenticity? Well, just that, you know, uh, uh, learn how to bear witness to what you're doing and I have a book called Bearing Witness, but uh, if you can bear witness to what you're doing, it just, that's, uh, authenticity is just what flows out of that, that in my opinion. <laughs> well, Bernie Glassman, thanks very much for your time and for sharing your stories with us. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Bernie Glassman. You can find out more about Bernie on the Zen Peacemakers website, which is zenpeacemakers.org. I'll link to that and to Bernie's work on the episode page. Since this is episode number six, you can access the webpage for this episode by going to acongruentlife.net slash six in your web browser. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. Please take a quick minute to leave a positive review on the iTunes store. 
which is linked from our homepage at acongruentlife.net, and subscribe to our community list on the right sidebar of that page. Thanks again. We'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.